This is Perspectives, the show where a look at how we may be different often ends up showing really how much we have in common. I'm Condis Presley. Our nation this week is reeling. One day after celebrating 240 years of America's independence, Alton Sterling is shot, fatally wounded by police in Baton Rouge. A day later, outside St. Paul, Minnesota, Philando Castile and his girlfriend pulled over for a broken taillight. The reporting we've heard is that he told the officer that he was licensed to carry a firearm, that he had it, but when the officer asked him to produce his identification and his registration, he reached for that and then somehow it went sideways. The officer fired four times, Castile died, his girlfriend captured that and the aftermath all on Facebook Live. Her little four-year-old daughter in the back seat breaks your heart when you hear her saying, Mommy, I'm here. It's going to be all right. And you just don't know what the child comprehended. Then Thursday, police in Dallas patrolling a Black Lives Matter protest march that was peaceful and the march was ending. The officers were ambushed, 12 shot, five dead. And the sniper, a 25-year-old whom we are not going to identify, was actually blown up by the police after negotiations stalled. He told them that he acted alone, that he was motivated by the deaths of Sterling and Castile and wanted to kill white people, especially white police officers. Now in the studio, with that as our backdrop, to help us through this is an expert on race. He is Al Vivian, the CEO of an organization, a company called Basic Diversity, and I'm going to ask Al to tell us what that is. His father is the Reverend C.T. Vivian, a civil rights activist who marched with Dr. King and was last year honored by President Obama with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. As I said, Al is a friend. He is an expert in this area. Is there really a race war erupting in America? How do you help people make sense of these many tragedies? Got you. I, I, I think, well, first I want to thank you, one, for having me on, uh, two, uh, for not mentioning the name of the person who did the shootings against the police officers. Uh, vast majority of law enforcement officers are doing an outstanding job. They're great at what they do, and I'm glad that they're out there. Uh, that being said, uh, I want to move forward from there. So are we at a tipping point or are we at a race war? I don't think we're at a race war. I do believe that we are possibly reaching a tipping point where you have so many demographic changes all at once that are causing some to be afraid. And when people are afraid, they act out usually in negative ways. So you, you have the demographic shifts that are, that are quite frankly, scaring some within the dominant, uh, dominant group. And by the way, I, I, I don't use the terms minority, majority. I use dominant, non-dominant because the, uh, it doesn't matter if you're in majority numbers if you have no power. Uh-huh. Uh, South Africa, whites, blacks outnumber whites 10 to 1, but they didn't have any power. They were not the dominant group. And so whenever anybody in a dominant group, uh, if you're talking race, that's whites. If you're talking gender, that's men. If you're talking sexual orientation, that's those of us who are straight. If you're talking religion in America, that's those of us who are Christian. If you're in a dominant group, you're used to seeing the world from your group's perspective. You're used to everything going according to your cultural norms. And when you start to feel like the world is shifting and it's no longer just your cultural norms that are the cultural norms, it causes fear and people act out usually in negative ways when they're afraid. 
My sense is that what we're not having in this country is an intelligent conversation about the differences, as you said, between the dominant and the non-dominant cultures. Yes. Uh, there's, there's, there's a conversation about race that needs to be had that no one is having. Am I right? You are 100% correct. And, and you can't resolve an issue by avoiding the issue. You can't fix problems by acting like they're not there. So we have finally got to where, gotten to the point where we're actually acknowledging there is a problem, uh, whereas many will avoid it. Um, but there was a, a, a Pew research uh, poll recently done, and I want to say it was, well, I'm not sure if I'm getting them mixed up. There was one by Pew. There was also one by CNN where the majority of Americans, the majority of white Americans, say that they do believe that, that race is a problem in America today. And hearing that, it, it, it's, it, it sets the table for an honest dialogue. But at the same time, uh, you have people so afraid to have that conversation that if you want to talk cultural competence, they're not calling it cultural competence. They're calling it political correctness. That's a way of avoiding dealing with the issue. Now, I am anti-political correctness, but I am not anti-cultural competence. The vast majority of what people are calling political correctness is actually cultural competence, and it's people in the dominant groups saying, I don't want to have that conversation because that means I have to give up my cultural norms as the only dominant norms. Now I have to think about how other people think on these issues, the same way men feel on gender and people who are straight, those of us who are straight, feel on sexual orientation. It's the same thing that's happening with many in the white community as it relates to race. But until we have that conversation, we're going nowhere. Why don't people want to have this conversation? Is it because, as you say, people do not want to acknowledge that there is another cultural norm in addition to their own that is relevant as we try to live happy lives day to day? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's that. It's not either or, it's and. It's the, and both is that and the fact that as we look at those cultural competencies, that's not just whites having to understand African-Americans, if we talk on race, that's African-Americans having to learn to understand Latinos and Asians because we don't. Uh, and and, and that's, that's also part of the fear that the African-American community is having, that we're no longer the dominant racial group. We're not the largest racial group. We might still slightly be the dominant one, but we're not the largest racial minority group. And so we're having to deal with that change also. So I think a lot of that is all coming to bear at the same time. How can all of this happen in an America that put a Barack Obama in the White House? Well, you know, so many people want to believe that uh, because Barack Obama got elected that we're now in this post-racial America. And, and first off, he didn't get elected because of post-racial anything. And, and in addition, we're not post-racial. I mean, the, the entire conversation, the vast majority of the conversation uh, or the biggest topic of conversation during the 2008 campaign was his race. So definitely not post-racial. What happened was that he was able to use diversity, and when I say use, I don't mean in a negative way, he leveraged diversity to win. He, he was able to get a base that went across all spectrums, which is what diversity is all about, which, by the way, is what America is all about. You know, we are a diverse society, and we always said we believe in equality, justice, freedom, and inalienable rights. And so when someone can actually tap into all of that and get elected by a cross-section, that's huge. And, and that, that's, one, what's, what, what uh, others are trying to do now. We'll see what happens. But Hillary's trying to do that now. We'll see what happens off of that. But at, at the same time, um, uh, he not only did it with his 2008 campaign, 2012, uh, Romney got the largest percentage of the white vote of any candidate since Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan got that same percentage of the white vote and won by a landslide. 
Romney got it and lost because the demographics have shifted that much. And for many people, that that that's that's fearful. That means so, that their America is no longer their America only. Because there is, as you say, a shift in the dominant culture. Well, the dominant culture is still white. The dominant culture will, even in 2043, which is now the date when it's estimated that whites will no longer be 50 plus percent, they will still be the dominant and the largest single racial group. You know, blacks, Latinos, Asians, Arabs, Native Americans, and others combined will equal 50 to 52 percent of the population, but whites will still be 48 percent, the largest single racial group in the country. So they'll still be the largest dominant group, but they're afraid of the fact that they're no longer going to be the only big group racially. Uh, and it's going to, number two is going to be Latinos, and that's, that's a lot of power. Go ahead and let the audience know what it is that you do at Basic Diversity. What does your firm do, and how do you get out and educate people about these issues and how to, how to deal? I'm glad you asked that question. So Basic Diversity is the nation's oldest culture diversity consulting firm. We were started by my dad back in 1974 before they were even calling it diversity. Uh, then we only dealt with race. Actually, we only dealt with black, white then. I came on board and expanded that out to the full s- scope of diversity. So we do diversity training, uh, uh, cultural competence training, and in particular now, implicit bias training. Because a lot of the stuff that we do wrong is not intentional. It's our unconscious biases that we don't even know that we have that are controlling a lot of our behaviors. And so we go out and help organizations, uh, corporate, government, nonprofit, colleges and universities, we go out and help all these kind of organizations understand how to increase the cultural competence of their employees so that they can work well together, so they can leverage all that diversity brings. Because study after study shows the more diversity you have around you, the more productivity, the more creativity, the more innovation, uh, you, everything gets better. But you have to create an environment that's open for that. So create an inclusive environment. By the way, inclusive, people use diversity and inclusion interchangeably. Inclusion deals with do people feel included? no matter what their background is. Diversity is about the demographic mix. So you gotta have both, diversity and inclusion. You can have all the diversity you want, but if, there's, if it's not an inclusive environment, then it's not gonna work out. So like in America, we are a very diverse society, but we're not fully inclusive yet. And that's why a lot of this, uh, why a lot of the mishaps and the anger and confusion, because we're not fully inclusive yet, but talk, we're getting there. Talk to us a little bit more about what you mean when you talk about implicit bias. Okay, so our brains are, designed incredibly so. Our brains are designed to pick up patterns to help us get through our day-to-day basis. There's anywhere from 10 million to 11 million bits of information coming at us at all given times during the course of the day. We can only analyze about 40 or 50 of those bits of information. The rest of that stuff, our brains are figuring out what to do with it. So we'll look at patterns and we'll figure out how to survive. So I can look and see a chair and say, there are four legs on that chair, it's safe to sit in, it's not gonna fall over. I haven't thought about it, it's just, it's natural, it's implicit. So our brains are really efficient, but the problem is our brains are also often wrong when it comes to things that, that, that require thought. We jump to conclusions and make decisions by seeing the world only from our perspective and not realizing there are other perspectives out there. Or we've been taught so many things that are just not so, we believe it. And our brains say, hey, that's the pattern. We've always seen, like I turn on the TV set and I always see the bad people are the black people and the good people are the white people and the people in charge are supposed to always be the men. And so if we believe that because it's been, that's the pattern we've seen, our brains react to that pattern. So when we see something different than that, it makes us uncomfortable or it makes us question the validity of that. 
And so we make a lot of mistakes, not because we're bad people, but because our brains are very efficient and we've been fed a whole lot of crap over a long period of time. Let's talk about some of the facts that exist for black and brown people when it comes to criminal justice and law enforcement. And the president said it in his statement. He said, citing the studies and the facts, that African-Americans are 30 percent more likely than whites to be pulled over. After being pulled over, African-Americans and Hispanics three times more likely to be searched. Last year, African-Americans were shot by police at more than twice the rate of whites. African-Americans are arrested at twice the rate of whites. African-American defendants, 75 percent more likely to be charged with offenses that carry mandatory minimums. They receive sentences that are almost 10 percent longer than comparable whites arrested for the very same crime. What about these facts are people in the dominant culture not hearing, not accepting, and not acting upon? Well, again, the implicit biases, the, the unconscious biases, are controlling, controlling a lot of what they're doing. So when the officer stops the African-American way three times more likely, they're not saying to themselves, not most of them are not saying automatically and consciously, stop black folk because they're all bad they're seeing patterns that their brains have pictured and, and created because of what they see in the media or what they see as a result of stopping blacks more often they end up believing that blacks are way more likely to commit crime but study after study shows that's not true uh so so what happens is they're going by those patterns then you get in the courtroom and the 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 jury has the same basic concept and mindsets based on their implicit uh, biases. So they're making these decisions as to who I should trust, who I should not trust. I've, I've worked with law enforcement and I've worked with uh, uh, judges. And, and, and I, I remember doing a workshop, the, the one year from my race awareness workshop, which again for the public has been evaluated as the most effective race relations seminar in the country. And I remember working with a group of prosecutors and judges where one of the prosecutors just said, look, let's just be honest. She says, whenever I walk in the room and I look across the room and I see the defendant is black or brown, she says, I immediately check that off as a win because I know I can get 12 average people to believe the black person or the brown person is guilty. A lot easier than I can get them to believe that the white person is guilty. They will always give the white person the benefit of the doubt. But for the black person and the black person, Latino person, they'll automatically assume they're guilty. Otherwise, why would they be sitting in that seat? So the reality is, because of all these patterns, the implicit biases, what we've seen happen time and time again, it just continues. And if I'm three times more likely to get stopped, then that means somebody else who is a criminal is three times less likely to get stopped. So they're more likely to get away with the crime. So even when people say, well, if you look at the statistics of who's in jail, it's obvious that blacks commit more crime. No, blacks are getting caught way more often. Latinos are getting caught way more often. You look at drug usage, it's, it's overwhelmingly white, but we think black because that's who we usually see get arrested for drug abuse. Well, if you're going to three times more likely stop and check, you know, if you have a stop and frisk law like they had in, in New York for yeah. a long period of time where 800,000 to 1 million people were stopped and searched at random without warrant and 85 to 90 percent of the people who were stopped were black or Latino, well, duh, you're going to get more blacks and Latinos ending up going to jail for drug possession. Uh, so it, it just plays out that way. The other reason why it's hard for people in the dominant culture to look at this issue is because they then have to look at society very differently than they've always looked at it. We've been taught, all of us, from the time we were little bitty kids, we've been taught, and we, and we bought into this, we believe it, that regardless of race, creed, color, sex, national origin, we're all entitled to certain rights and freedoms. This is a part of our value system. We believe it. 
But what we do is because we believe it and we don't look at the realities, we end up believing that if a black person is sitting in the defendant's seat, they must be guilty. Come on, this is a fair country. Why else would they be in that situation? Um, someone I know posted on Facebook yesterday how recently, and she's an attorney, she served uh, on a jury. And in the, the questioning part where they're determining who's going to get kicked off the jury, who's going to be kept, she said the attorney asked the question, how many of you believe that the police are right 100% of the time? No, how many of you believe, don't believe that the police are right 100% of the time? How many of you believe the police are not always right? Uh, uh, every black hand went up. He says, okay, how many of you think that the police are right 100% of the time? She said about 90% of the white hands went up. And it just instantly sent the message. And she had to spend some time talking with the other people there that, well, let me tell you some of the realities that go on. And because she's an attorney, she was able to give them some stats, like the stats you just threw out, that helped them understand things very differently. But whites automatically think that law enforcement is always right because that fits the schema that they've been taught to believe, that fits the pattern of what they believe because it's what we've always been taught. Whereas African-Americans have a totally different experience with law enforcement, so we see them very differently. So we start off not trusting because we're usually the ones that are the victims of that lack of trust. Exactly. Talking about all of the many posts that have been on Facebook in the in recent days in light of what has happened, I got to tell you, I was impressed at something that one of my classmates who has also gone through your race awareness workshop posted about her comprehension of what white privilege means. And that's something that perhaps many whites in our community, we know they have, but don't acknowledge, recognize, and understand how it genuinely is different right. for white Americans. Just as us as men don't think about our gender privilege. Exactly. Just as those of us who are straight don't think of our sexual orientation privilege and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you have the privilege, you don't think about it. You just live it. And you wonder why the others complain so much when everything's fair. Because for you, it's fair for you. it is fair, right. And so others believe that. So, yeah, it, it's a lot of that is playing out, that the she lives in a totally different world. And, and, and also, many of us who are African-American who have done well financially can forget until we get reminded, you know, because I, I mean, I, I've been reminded quite a few times, you know. There are days where I don't think about it, and, you know, but somebody will remind me when I get halfway down the block, oh, that, yeah, don't forget you're black. And so, and by the way, don't forget, I should say, shouldn't say don't forget you're black, don't forget that you're not the dominant group. Exactly. You know, nothing wrong with being black. Something very wrong with being discriminated against. You know, so uh, quite often people put the blame on the victim. You know, well, if you weren't black, no, if you weren't racist, my blackness wouldn't be an issue. And so people have to understand that and have that conversation. But that, that's uncomfortable for what any dominant group. Exactly. What conversation should parents, especially parents with African-American boys as children, what conversations should they be having with their kids? And with social media, there's so much that kids are aware of now that they perhaps were not aware of 15, 20 years ago. And it's just, it's a different world. It is, but you know, it's it's one thing to have head knowledge. It's another thing to have heart knowledge and reality knowledge where it hits you upside the head. Um, I remember when, um, well, first answer your question, and that is that the conversations we should be having with them pretty much sadly is the same conversation my parents had with me because not a whole lot has changed. Things aren't as visible, but the the results are pretty similar. Uh, 
continue to do the right thing, um, try to keep try to keep people comfortable, um, uh, avoid avoid confrontation unless you have to, uh, always put your faith first, uh, all those things that we've always been taught, you know, um, be the bigger man, you know, be the bigger person, etc. And we've been taught all that all of our lives, um, which also is quite often why most people in non-dominant groups can uh, deal with being in a non-dominant position more because all of our lives we've had to think about it and deal with it. Whereas if you're in a dominant group, you don't have to. So as as an African-American, I have to think about race all the time. But as a man, I don't have to think about my gender. So that's when it becomes uncomfortable when I got to think about that. And that's why people do the pushback, uh, wanting to deny dealing with their privilege. But back on the head knowledge versus the, the reality knowledge, I remember when the um, Zimmerman trial, uh, even, even that's something because people often call it the Trayvon Martin trial. He wasn't on trial. You no, know, he, he wasn't really, but he was on trial because they made him out to be something he, you know, exaggerated who he was. But uh, the Zimmerman trial, my, my, my wife was out of town. Uh, my uh, youngest son was off at the Air Force Academy. And my youngest son, well, my oldest son was visiting with me. We were hanging out. We were going to go out to the movies that night. And the verdict came out. And I will never forget the look on his face. It was disbelief. He, he could not believe the verdict. And being a millennial, he immediately went to Facebook. And he was shocked and taken aback by some of the comments from some of his white friends who he thought would line up with his views. And they just totally didn't. Well, why are you upset? Why is this bothering you? It didn't happen to you. Or well, you know, you know, this guy is was a was a different person, you know. Then you know, and what he was what was hitting him was that could have been me, you know, which is what the vast majority of African Americans were feeling that could have been me. So our conversation was very different than the conversation had by predominantly most of the people in the white community, except those who are culturally competent or who have been you know forced to think about and look at these issues in ways that others who have not. Uh, people who have a close friend who's a person of color, or people who have a, a, a relative who's a person of color, uh, they have to look at it very differently because now they come to the realization that there are things there that have to be thought about all the time because we do not live in a post-racial world. In situations where people seek to have the conversation between dominant and non-dominant culture, and dominant culture says, well, why does it have to be Black Lives Matter? Don't all lives matter? What is the answer to that question? Well, yeah, of course all lives matter. But, but, but unarmed white men aren't getting shot and killed by cops on a regular recurring basis. But that is happening to African Americans on a regular recurring basis. basis. So obviously, and the officers usually walk. If you add in the Trayvon Martin Zimmerman situation, that was even a whole nother level because that showed that not only do we have to fear law enforcement can pull us over and, you know, kill us and walk, a civilian who has a complex who wants to be law enforcement could kill us and walk after being told by law enforcement, do not pursue. Uh, in addition, the, the other reality is that I think that most people in the dominant group are not even looking at, and I think quite often many in the in the non-dominant group, many people of color have not even thought about this. It used to be that we would wait peacefully, no protest, for the trial, then the verdict, then we would protest. 
now we don't even get a trial unless we protest. Think about that. So the Trayvon Martin murder, Zimmerman wasn't even arrested. He was brought in for questioning. He wasn't arrested until there had been weeks of protests. We had to protest just to get an arrest, then protest more to get a trial. I mean, that we've never had to deal with that before. You got video cameras of, of what can I think of the gentleman's name right now, who was choked to death by the law enforcement officer in New York, and we didn't get a trial, you know, mm -hmm. on video. And the day it came out, the police chief, when he witnessed the video, he said immediately, that's an illegal chokehold. And still we didn't even get a trial. It was a, what do they call it? The, that was Eric Gardner. Yeah, Eric Gardner case. Uh, they had the, what do you call those panels that the... Um, uh, Civilian review boards? or Yeah, the review boards that said, we're not even going to go to trial. It's like, what? What? We have to protest to get a trial, which is amazing. And uh, another big difference between last night and previous time is that the protests we saw, it was very nonviolent. The reason why it was, why they usually are nonviolent, but the reason why it stayed nonviolent was because the police went in the way they should have. Right. There was coordination with police. The police coordinated with the community ahead of time. The police did not go in overly militarized. They weren't wearing bulletproof vests and driving in tanks with, with M16s. They went in in normal uniform, normal gear, and everything went great until a couple knuckleheads, well, at least one we know of, uh, did something that's wrong. And that was after the rally was over. It remained peaceful. And they will always be that way because that's who we tend to be as long as it's not escalated and elevated by law enforcement coming in uh, with, with guns drawn uh, and, and looking militarized. It's, it, we want to have the, the, the equality. I want to be hopeful and optimistic that there are listeners in our audience who want to adjust the cultural competency of their organizations, who want to have serious conversations about this implicit bias, and they can do that with your group, Basic Diversity. Tell folks how they can get a hold of you, Al. Uh, reach us via our website, www.basicdiversity.com, or you can go to our Facebook page, Basic Diversity Al Vivian Diversity Leadership Consultant. I know that's a long name, but... It's supposed to say everything that you do, or you can just call us, 770-716-0505. That's 770-716-0505 or basicdiversity.com. Al Vivian, God bless. I hope at least we've provided some information that will get some of our listeners talking. I, I greatly appreciate it. And just keep in mind, everybody out there, that people are genuinely good. It's just a lot of people don't know what they don't know. So let's work on educating each other. Well said. Thanks so much. Thank you. Perspectives is a half hour we produce with you in mind. If there's something you think we ought to be talking about, let me hear from you. Tweet me, condo 29 on Twitter, or leave a message on our Facebook page. We do appreciate your listening and hope you'll be back next week at this same time as we examine another perspective. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.